0: You know, as, as you turn into 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's a really, really, really important question for a day like today. Um, how, how many of you have a good track record with New Year's resolutions? Anyone? You know, like you, you make them and you actually keep them. Because today's the day, right? Like today is the day where worldwide, globally, people are going to be making decisions full of resolve. To make changes. You know, a couple of years ago, Google made an interactive map and invited people worldwide to tell us what their New Year's resolutions were. Take a look. Um, all over the globe, people were dropping pins and talking about uh, their resolutions. Uh, love and family, finance and fitness and education and career and fill in the blank. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm no good at resolutions. Uh, they have no sticking power for me. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I always get caught up in the whole new year, new you fad. I'm all about envisioning the changes that I want to make in the new year. I've just found that I'm, I'm committed to a whole lot less the older I get. Either that or I'm just lazier the older I get. Uh, that's why I got back in the gym a few months ago. I didn't want the pressure of the new year's crowd uh, weighing me down. But I'm just not a resolutions kind of guy. Re- regardless of where you fall on the resolution spectrum. Whether you are all in or you avoid it with gusto, I I would like to invite all of you into keeping just one New Year's resolution with me this year. Just one. Don't worry, nothing crazy. Uh, No half marathon. No giving up gluten. No reading 100 books this year. Uh, But it is going to be challenging. Here's what I'm thinking, Grace. Uh, Would you resolve with me this next year to intentionally choose to believe that God is for you? I know you will, Texas. You and me, girl. Would you intentionally choose this year, like before your feet ever hit the ground, would you choose to believe that God is for you, that that he loves you, that he's in your corner, that he cares for you, that he's meeting your needs, even if it doesn't feel like it? Even when the circumstances you're up against don't seem to match with that confession. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That's not a very difficult resolution. Au contraire. Listen, one of the most difficult parts of this journey of faith is choosing to believe that God is loving us. Knowing us fully and still loving us passionately and deeply and caring enough to meet our needs. When we need it. Not when we think we need it, but when we need it. Would you resolve with me to believe that God is for you? Now, to help with that confession, that resolution, I want to look at an Old Testament passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That surrounds the king of Israel, a guy named David. Most of us know David, or at least we know about David. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the shepherd boy who killed lions and bears and one really big giant. We know about this guy named David. And we're gonna look at three different scenes from David's life here in 2 Samuel 9. We're gonna see a picture. We're gonna see a posture And we're going to see some provision for all my alliteration fans in the room. We're going to see a picture of radical grace. We're going to see a posture of humility. And we're going to see the provision... Of the king, And here's what these three different scenes are going to demonstrate for us and how they're going to serve us in our one New Year's resolution this morning. We're going to see that God, the king above all kings, longs to show us mercy and compassion and kindness, not just as subjects of his kingdom, but as children that belong to his family. Let me say that again. Here's what we're going to see in this particular season of King David's life. That God, the king above all kings, longs to show us kindness and compassion, not just as subjects of his kingdom, though we are, but as beloved, being loved children of his family, even when we don't feel like it. Even when we don't believe that we could be loved that lavishly by God. Read with me, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, Then I'm going to give you a little bit of historical context. Warn you now, it's really boring, but it's important. Uh, And then we're going to dive in and we're going to listen for our Heavenly Father's voice. You ready? All right, 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And then David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There's a lot there in verse 1. Don't worry, I'll catch you up. Verse 2, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. Oh, yeah, he's crippled in both feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. debar Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Verse 6: And Mephibosheth, that was his name, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. And what did he do when he came to the king? He fell on his face and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage. And he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul's household, guess what? Now it belongs to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and all of your servants, they shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce for him so that he might have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he shall now eat at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, the only thing he should say, yes, sir. According to all that the Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. There's a lot in this chapter. There's a lot in verse 1. Look how the author starts the verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Then. It's a significant then because it communicates the passage of time as a transition word. Because there has been a lot that has happened up to this point in this man David's life. He's no longer the shepherd boy tending to his father's flock in the wilderness. He was now the king of Israel, tending to the flock of God's people. He has slain Goliath. He has risen to power. He has subdued his foes, and his kingdom has been established and unified. And here, here we find David at a peak. Right, He has led Israel to military conquest over an impressive array of foes. All of the ites the Edomites and the Ammonites and the uh, Moabites and the Philistines and the Amalekites and Zobah and Arim, all of them. He's moved his base of operations from Hebron to the fortress city in Jerusalem. He's extended the borders of his kingdom to the greatest lengths Israel has ever known. Now, as was the custom of the day, those who had risen to power through military might, the expectation was that they would execute all of the remaining family of the previous royal family. Meaning when a new regime or a dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. In the words of Dale Ralph Davis, commentator, he says this. You don't need to go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this political move. You can stay within the pages of biblical history. First Kings 15, watch Ba'ashah. Or Zimri, 1 Kings 16. Or Jehu, 2 Kings 10. To find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. The new king needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy. Solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. This was the common practice of the day. But David was not a common king. And so here in this first scene from David's life, we see this radical picture of grace begin to unfold. Verse 1, then David said, is there anybody left of Saul's household? It's as if David finally has a chance to take a breath and to have a thought, not a thought of conquest, not a thought of replenishing supply lines or shoring up defenses, but a personal thought, a heart level thought. And that thought was of Jonathan, his beloved, his best friend who had died in battle at the end of 1 Samuel, alongside his father, Saul. If you remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. The people of Israel clamored that they wanted a king just like all of the other nations around them. And God told them, no, you don't. No, you don't. But they did. And they got Saul who was head and shoulders above everybody else. He had everything going for him. And then he disobeyed God and he sacrificed his kingship. And in 1 Samuel, we see that even though Saul was king, David was anointed by Samuel to be the future king of Israel. Everybody knew it, including King Saul. Including Saul's son, Jonathan, who became his closest brothers with David. Now it's interesting. King Saul, he knew that God had anointed David. And he loved David, and he hated David. And he went back, and he went forth. And he cared for David, and he tried to kill David. And though David knew he was anointed to be the king one day, it would take decades for this to take place. And while David awaited, you know what David did? He served King Israel. And he loved, uh, he served King Saul. And he loved King Saul, and he honored King Saul. He even married one of King Saul's daughters, Michal, And back and forth, back and forth, Saul would try to take David's life. Uh, You think you've got it rough with your in-laws. And so back in 1 Samuel, we find Jonathan standing up to the wrath of his father against David. See, Jonathan understood that God had anointed David. Jonathan understood what his father was unwilling to see. And so back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan looks at David and says basically this, upon your love for me. Would you cut a covenant promise with me that you will protect this house and you will protect this family? Regardless of what happens, on your love and honor of me, will you care for my family? And so, in this moment, 2 Samuel chapter 9, David remembers, and David is moved to keep his covenant promise. So he begins looking for the family of Jonathan. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And this word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, and it translates in English as loving kindness or mercy. It's only used in the Old Testament of God's loving action towards his covenant people. It is a steadfast kind of love. It is loyal and compassionate. It is nothing less than the kind of love that God has for his people. And David says, I want to extend the love of God to my enemy. And I need you to see this. David's kindness wasn't in response to the performance of this heir to the house of Saul. This loving kindness was attached to the covenant relationship that David had with Jonathan. It is the relationship with the father that was about to benefit the son. And we're not even out of verse 1 yet. And we're already in extraordinary Territory. Forget the practice of the day, wiping out the remaining members of the previous line. Rather, David at the peak of his power seeks to show kindness and compassion and mercy and favor to the house of his enemy, to Saul, to the family of the one who sought to destroy him. We're not even at halfway, first, halfway through verse 1 here. And the force of the chapter is already said, this is kindness of the most radical sort. Mercy that was undeserved, grace that seeks after and searches for. And is this not the same loving kindness that we each have been shown in Christ? Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome in chapter 5, writes, But God demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die. <laughs> for people who are naturally inclined toward God or who expressed a desire to cease from their enmity against him. Christ died for people who were hostile towards him and to his good news gospel. Christ died for those who were helpless to prove themselves worthy. Helpless to do or think or say anything that might attract God's love or favor. Contrary to the popular cliche, God helps those who help themselves, No. No, God helps those who are utterly unable to help themselves. Now, David wasn't a perfect man. His sin would all but tear the kingdom asunder. Keep reading 2 Samuel to see how that plays out. But right here, at this point in David's story, he is not a king influenced by the world around him, but a king influenced by the God at work in him. And instead of exacting justice... And securing self preservation. Instead, King David is searching and seeking out his enemy to show grace and bestow favor. This is the kind of countercultural activity that always reverses the values of the world. In a day where the status quo was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know what David's doing here? He's demonstrating Jesus's ministry at the Sermon on the Mount. This is David living out, forgive 70 times seven. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Thousands of years before Jesus would ever utter those words. This is a brushstroke of redemption. Painting for us a picture that points us forward to the day that God himself would come in the person of his son. Seeking out those who were lost. This is the first scene this morning from David's life. It is a radical picture of grace. The heart of God at work in the servant of God in order to display the love of God. That's the formula, and it never changes. The heart of God at work in the servants of God in order to express and extend the love of God. Verse 1, we see a radical picture of grace here. Which brings us to our second scene. And it's a scene we're always going to find when there is a right understanding of grace. In the second scene, we find the proper posture of humility. In verse 2, David finds this servant of Saul named Ziba... Ziba seems to be a well-off manager of Saul's old estate, but a servant wasn't good enough. David wasn't satisfied with hired help. He sought out an actual heir. And so he asks again in verse 2, is there not anybody left? Is there no one left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And what is Ziba's response? Yes, 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 there is still a son of Jonathan. Oh, yeah, but he's, he's crippled in both feet. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that. So the account goes on, David gets all of the info and he sends for Mephibosheth, he sends for the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, and here comes Mephibosheth. Now this isn't the first time we meet Mephibosheth. He shows up in the biblical narrative back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. And what we learn there is that this guy had a pretty rough life. He was a prince perhaps a future king, but in the very battle that took his father's life and his grandfather Saul's life, we read that a nurse grabbed him to run from the battle and ended up dropping him and crippling and maiming his feet. And now he's living in exile. He's lost his family. He's lost his position. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his ability to walk. He's got nothing left. Most scholars believe he's living in a self-imposed exile in Lodabar. He's a reject. He's a cripple. He's poor without any power to change his lot in life. And then the king sends for him. I'm going to talk about rising action here. This plays out like a movie. Can, Can you imagine what's going through Mephibosheth's mind? I've been waiting on this invitation. What do you think he's thinking? He was five years old. Chances are pretty good he didn't know that his father and King David loved one another as brothers. No, no, no. I think he expected one thing when he got to the throne room. A swift execution. Now imagine the exchange. Verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, comes to David. And what does he do? He falls on his face and he pays homage. Some translations read that he falls on his face and he lays prostrate. The word prostrate means to bow down humbly. To sink as low as possible in a position of honor and humility. We find this word all throughout the psalms, speaking of submission. Here is a young man crippled in both feet. Awkwardly falling on the ground. Face to dust before the king now perhaps this was just the the proper posture of a social superior and an inferior or or perhaps Mephibosheth knew that he was as good as dead we don't know whatever the case whatever the motivation this was the proper posture of humility Mephibosheth acknowledged that his fate rested in the hands of the king and that apart from mercy he had no hope And is this not also how we came to understand the grace of God ourselves? Sinners before a righteous and holy God at enmity with our creator, Paul again, the apostle writes in Ephesians 2, that we were dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. We showed up on planet earth, sons of our forefather Adam, with sin all up in our hearts. And we desired to do things our way, not God's way. And as a result, we were sinners by nature. By nature, children of wrath, Paul goes on to write in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the bad news that precedes the good news in church. For us to truly understand grace is to see the magnitude of God's righteous wrath against Sin. Mephibosheth had no reason to expect mercy. And so he comes and he falls on his face before the king. And church, entrance into the kingdom of God is always this posture of humility. Again, this is what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what what blessed or the, you know what poor in spirit is? Spiritual bankruptcy, this poverty of spirit. It's an acknowledgement that we truly have nothing at all to impress God with. Nothing to engender goodwill from him. And so the only right and reasonable response to the radical grace of God is this posture of humility. And it's how all of us entered into the kingdom. We acknowledge we had nothing to bring to God. Ah, but that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came and lived for us a life that was perfectly pleasing to the Father. And died a death that was necessary to open up access back into the throne, into the heart of God. So that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the proper posture of humility. Humility. Which brings us to the final scene from our passage, the provision of the king. This is, it gets good, y'all. What happens next in the story? Verse uh, verse 6, the king calls him by name. Verse 6, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And what does David say? Do not fear. Why was he afraid? Because he was expecting death. Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of Jonathan, your father. And I will restore to you all of the land of your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Three things that King David promises to do for him. One, to show kindness, has said the love of God. Two, to restore to him all of the land of his father, Saul. And three, perhaps the most stunning of the three, he tells him that you will eat at my table regularly. Now, folks, it was kindness enough that the king did not kill him, did not take his life, but to let him to continue to live in obscurity and in exile, safe and secure. But then the king takes it a step further, and he restores to him all of the land of his father Saul. Think about land promises and their significance in the Old Testament. This is covenantal language. In a matter of moments, Mephibosheth has gone from rags to riches destitute poverty to one of the most wealthy and rich and prosperous people in the entire kingdom. But if that was not enough, David then invites Mephibosheth to eat at his table. But not just for a meal, but always. Now don't think that this was just a, hey, when you're in the neighborhood, pop in, I'll save you a plate. This was an invitation to join his table as his son. This was the same invitation David received from his grandfather Saul decades earlier. And this was David extending the same invitation to Mephibosheth to come sit at my table always. This is the story of the heart of God at work in the king. And oh, how hard it is to receive the grace of God. Now let's be honest, how hard it is for us to believe that God loves us and has our best interests at heart. Because in Mephibosheth's response, we see our response so often. How does he respond? Verse 8, he lays himself out again at the king's feet and he says, why would you regard a dead dog like me? This is a very self-deprecating thing to say about oneself, especially as an Israelite. And through all of my study, here's the best that I can do with why he calls himself a dead dog. Philistines loved dogs, Israelites hated Philistines. Israelites probably weren't great fans of dogs. I'm sorry, dog lovers, the Old Testament has no hope for you. But essentially, he was calling himself worthless before the king. But isn't it true? Let's be honest, our past failures, our flaws, our mistakes, may they have a way of enslaving us and naming us if we will let them. And yet, David looks past all of that to show mercy and kindness and lavish provision. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to have been Mephibosheth to come to that table each day? Some scholars suggest that David was just, you know, keeping his friends close and his enemies even closer. I'm not buying that. You know why I'm not buying that? Because all throughout this passage, what we see in David is what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It is a complete reversal of the values of the day in which they lived. David had every cultural and political and societal right and expectation to wipe Saul's remaining heirs off the face of the earth. But the love of God compelled David. And the love of God compels us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of God compels us to move in the direction of other people with the ministry of reconciliation. That's a church word if you ever heard one. You know what reconciliation means? It simply means to to restore to a former state of harmony. God has given us a ministry Each of us that have called on the name of the Lord and been indwelt by his spirit, we have all been given a ministry of reconciling image bearers back to their God who loves them, created them, and died for them and rose for them. We have been called to help restore lost image bearers back to their God. It's an incredible privilege and a weighty call. Now what we see in this passage again is the heart of God at work in the king. And Here's what I need you to see. I'm going to get you out of here early. Happy New Year's. Don't expect this from Pastor Dustin, (laughs) y'all. Scratch that from the video. Actually, you're probably watching Pastor Dustin. Happy New Year. I need you to see that this story is not an exhortation for us to try to emulate the king, okay? This story is not for us to try hard to be like King David. No, 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 no. This story is to function as a lens through which we might see the greater story of redemption. David is billboarding for us the nature and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, And I can't help but think that on some days, Mephibosheth, he struggled with seeing himself as a son who had a right to sit at the king's table. I think Mephibosheth probably struggled on some days as seeing himself as one of the wealthiest individuals in the kingdom. I I can't help but think that some days he still saw himself as a dead dog like he did not deserve the favor of the covenant-keeping king. But I am also convinced that when David looked across the table at Mephibosheth, he saw the face of his father, Jonathan. And for those of us who have taken a seat at the table with our heavenly father, when the father looks across the table at us, he does not see our faults and our flaws and our failures. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And we don't act like it. We struggle with believing it. Our thoughts don't often align with the truth of who we are in Christ. That's why this New Year's resolution is a little bit more difficult than you would first expect. To believe that we are God's being loved children. Look at that last verse. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Isn't it interesting that the author ends the story with that? Know why he does that? I I think because he wanted to remind us reading this thousands of years later that we're not King David in this story. No, no, no. No, we're Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. We are children who have been granted a seat at the table, yet we still walk with a limp. Though we're still crippled, maybe not lame in our feet, but we are crippled. The remnants of sin and our flesh and the devil in the world constantly buffeting us, tempting us to get our needs met apart from Jesus. That we are constantly walking with a limp and yet... And yet, that, that's the tension of the Christian life. Believing that we are who God says we are, even when our actions and our behavior and our thoughts at times betray that confession. Uh, my marriage counselor told me 15 years ago, um, who told you that your feelings were accurate indicators of reality anyway? Uh, let me say that again. Who told you that your feelings are accurate indicators of reality? I think that was for you, Adrian. I'm just going to let that lay there. I tried to use that on my wife early on in marriage. And then my marriage counselor reminded us, no, that was for you, not for her. But, but how often do we allow our feelings to boss us around and tell us what to do? And, and even when we feel like a dead dog, if we are in Christ... We are joint heirs with Jesus. But it's hard to believe that. Imagine how this year might look differently. If we would choose to consciously confess that we are God's being loved children. I don't know. I don't know. Here's my challenge for you. This week. Here's some homework for you. <clears throat> get up before your kids. I know it's hard. Trust me. Spend some time in Second Samuel chapter nine. If you don't have kids, then get up before just get up. <laughs> and open up your word. And come back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And take 5 to 10 minutes this week. Revisit the story. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to see yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes. Relive the moment when you came to humble recognition that apart from the mercy of God, you were toast. And then would you revel In the fact that God abundantly, abundantly has poured out his mercy on you in Christ Jesus. And that because Jesus has invited us to his table, the table where his body was broken and his blood was shed, that we might come to the table of God's fellowship, to the very seat of his throne, no longer as enemies, but as his being loved children. Mephibosheth received sonship and riches, as have we. Do you know these riches? That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. It means that if you are a Christian in this place, you are lacking nothing necessary to experience the abundant life that Jesus called us to live. Abundant life does not mean healthy, wealthy, and wise. It means sufficiently tasked for everything God has called us to We've been joined to the inexhaustible source and supply of his life for every crisis and every conflict, every setback and set up and scenario. And the reason that we need one another is because I need you to remind me on days when I'm having a hard time believing that I deserve a seat at the table. Because even I struggle with that sometimes. Even I believe the lies of the enemy, that I'm not worthy of God's grace. And I need you to speak to the new man in me, to remind me that I am God's being loved child. So next time you greet me, I want you to greet me like this. You ready? Hey, Brother Cameron, how's my holy, righteous, being loved, complete and chosen one in Christ doing today? Maybe that's how you need to greet yourself in the mirror tomorrow morning. Believing that God is for you. Look, I don't know what God has in store for 2023. Pastor David hit the nail on the head. We just don't know. And some of the people in my world and myself included, like, we struggle from chronic uncertainty. We know God is faithful. Yet it doesn't feel like it all the time. So we're choosing to believe and trust that he will enlarge our faith this year. As we are about our father's business. So let me pray for you and with you. Father God, thank you for this picture in David's life. Lord, he's a man that we don't know who lived thousands and thousands of years ago. And a story that's seemingly disconnected from our day. And yet, this story reminds us that David had a greater ancestor. Jesus, son of David. Who is seated on the throne of heaven. Who conquered sin, death, and the grave. And who joined his life to our life through his spirit. And has given us everything we need pertaining to life, godliness, and the year 2023. Father, help us to believe that. Lead us in triumph and victory as you say you will in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Father, we relinquish our dictionaries this year. We allow you to define good for us this year. And we trust that whatever comes to us comes first from you. And it passes through your hands and we can receive it filled with the spirit. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. We trust you for this year. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.